Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hi, this is Colin. It's the end of the week. That means it's time for the notes. It's not quite the end of our week yet anyway, but I hope you can kind of lean back and relax uh, uh, chillax, as Bill and Ted would urge you to do. So let me tell you about what the show... I don't even know if they really would say chillax. But anyway, so uh, here on the show today, um, you know how it is. You walk into a bookstore, right away you need to poop. Okay, maybe that doesn't happen to you, but that actually is a thing, particularly in Japan. It is a syndrome which has a name. It has a Wikipedia article which is 8,000 words long, <laughs> which is... Probably longer than the World War II article. I'm just guessing. Uh, so we'll tell you about that. We also we watched two things that are reboots of 80s franchises. Uh, there's a new Bill and Ted movie, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Uh, so the original 18, 1989 movie is, uh, well, let's just say they're a lot older now. Uh, they have not improved in other ways. Uh, and we also, we talked about this before on the show, but uh, from 1984, we've got Karate Kid. It reboots in Netflix, on Netflix now into Cobra Kai, which the last time I checked was the number one thing on Netflix at the moment. Uh, so we'll be talking about all that. But first of all, uh, let me introduce the panel. And then second of all, uh, let me tell you about the first topic. So joining us today, Hilder Mira is a multimedia producer at Trinity College and a Cine Studio board member. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance and lots of other things, too. She joins us by the miracle of Skype. So, uh, Dancing with the Stars. Uh, let me just uh, give you the the numbers here. So, Dancing with the Stars is, I believe, entering its 29th season. There are 15 competitors. There have been a total of 372, including some duplicate competitors, over those 28 seasons of Dancing with the Stars. Uh, and the, the thing that excites us, well, the new season will have the rapper Nelly, in case you wondered whatever happened to the rapper Nelly. Catfish's Ned Shul Nev Shulman, who uh, Carolyn is going to explain to us in just a second. One of the Backstreet Boys, doesn't matter which one. Uh, but the thing that really got us excited was that Carol Baskin, she of the Tiger King, the more recently famous Carol Baskin, uh, over whom linger suspicions that her husband, Don Lewis, who kind of just disappeared from the earth rather mysteriously, well, I mean, there are accusations that she might have killed him and maybe even fed her, fed him to the big cats. Uh, so, um, so Carolyn, I'm going to have you get us started, right? You have a real touch with this kind of material. Um, <laughs> and, and I, you know, I think the thing that I was uh, asking before the show is, like, who can't be on Dancing with the Stars? Like, at what point are you too damaged a set of goods to be on Dancing with the Stars? Uh, but give us your general take on the idea of Carol Baskin. Well, obviously, they they want damaged people. They obviously <laughs> want the biggest train wrecks possible because that's great ratings. Like, I have not watched Dancing with the Stars in years. I mean, I really, I really don't even care about the show, but I'm going to tune in to watch Carol Baskin <laughs> attempt to cha-cha. Like, that is that, especially in the era of COVID where, you know, our TV watching options are 
are, are, are pretty limited as they try to retool everything. That's going to be the hottest ticket to watch in town right now. Um, plus, like, how many leopard print costumes and flower crown costumes can they get her in? Uh, it's, it's just going to be great. I'm, I'm really excited for that. And, and, uh, Neve Schulman from Catfish. Uh, I don't know if anyone else. You might have to watching. explain that. You might have to explain yeah. who that is. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. Well, so, uh, Neve Schulman was a photographer and filmmaker based out of New York city. And, uh, about, I don't know, 15 years ago, he made a documentary about his experience being catfish, which is when somebody, uh, gets into a relationship with you online pretending to be someone they aren't. Uh, so he was in what he thought was a relationship with a, a young woman. And it turned out that it was a, uh, a very sad mother of multiple children who had this very complicated and weird life in the middle of the country in the middle of nowhere. And that documentary, which is pretty fascinating and I do recommend watching uh, then that documentary birthed a series on MTV called Catfish that really helped make that term popular. And the documentary explains where they get the term catfish, which is really fascinating. Um, but the show on MTV is pretty, you know, I, I, I mean, it, it, it's the kind of garbage reality TV that I'm drawn to. So if you're <laughs> if you have found yourself drawn to that kind of stuff, but he's on Dancing with the Stars and uh, he's kind of an awkward I, I can't even imagine. He looks awkward walking, so mm -hmm. I, it's going to be pretty exciting to watch him dance too. I, I don't there know. Was, I there mean, was uh, some social media speculation that maybe he would be able to solve the uh, the murder of Don Lewis, Carol Baskin's husband. So you know, with, <laughs> with the tremendous sleuthing capacity, he apparently has. So Helder, I'm going to ask you to kind of uh, uphold the tent pole of culture here. Uh, <laughs> And say, so, I mean, they've, they've, they're in a race for the bottom, right? I mean, Mel B and Mario Lopez and various NFL players and Olympic speed skaters, that's just not enough anymore, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean would it surprise either of you if I said I've actually never watched an episode of Dancing with the Stars or anyone that knows me? Um, it's just like, to me, it's always like, it hits my radar when someone like, um, oh, I don't know, Sean Spicer gets gets right. added to it or, or Rick Perry. And it just, it seems like that's what it is. It's this buzz for a moment. And then everyone kind of forgets that the show's even on except for Carolyn and everyone else that's watching it. But like the rest oh, of Oh, I, I don't watch it. I, I'm just going to tune, I just tune in to see the train wreck. Just to be oh, clear, okay. that, that show is too garbage even for me. But you're, not, I am, you're not actually like voting at the same time. Right. Oh, so. absolutely no. No, too, I just. Too garbage I, I or think, not garbage enough. That would be the question. So this is the only way I've actually processed Dancing with the Stars to bring it back to like the pop culture that I enjoy, which is, um, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the sadly short-lived TV series on uh, ABC, uh, Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, where James, yeah. Vander, James Vanderbeek plays like a lampoonish version of himself as an actor, um, trying to like make it in his big dream is to get onto Dancing with the Stars, and he eventually does get onto it, spoiler <laughs> alert. And... Uh, <clears throat> And this was actually before the actual James Vanderbeek got onto the actual Dancing with the Stars. So life imitating art. But uh, this, that particular episode was just, I mean, the whole series is great. I highly recommend it. Uh, that's my quick 
endorsement for that. Well, but, uh, I, uh, I just wanted to add that, you know, I think another thing about this is kind of the quick turnaround, right? Like if you look at the, the history of Dancing with the Stars and the people who've been on it, I mean, you know, it was like Apollo Ono and people like that. There are people who like spent their lives kind of getting famous and achieving things. And I mean, not everybody, but, the, you know, that was sort of more of that, uh, you know, and even Sean Spicer was at least a White House spokesperson for a, however long it took before he blew up. Um, but, you know, here it's like this woman just came onto our radar screen a few months ago through this kind of trashy Netflix thing uh, and and not in a particularly savory way. And I find myself like I want to know what the meetings are like at Dancing with the Stars. I want to know when they had the conversation about Ghislaine Maxwell. I guess she's in prison now, but like, you know, you know, they had a conversation. Ghislaine Maxwell, for people who don't remember, would be Jeffrey Epstein's kind of procurer and collaborator uh, of some kind you know you know that they have conversations about people like that and then they either think oh no that even we can't bottom feed quite at that level or they go you know let's file that one away maybe she'll just get a little less radioactive or released in her case uh and and maybe we'll do it i mean to me carolyn they won. They got you to watch this show by finding somebody bizarre and unsavory enough to attract you, right? Yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's their whole game. Um, I mean, when you go through the list of the people, the other people who are on it, uh, I, I, a lot of them, I mean, are just kind of, uh, you know, they're the kind of celebrities that you sort of have forgotten about. And... Nice. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, Dancing with the Stars is the kind of show that like your where your you, you, where your career goes to die, right? And maybe it helps like bring you back into the cultural, you know, the cultural hemisphere. And in Carol Baskin's case, I mean, like Tiger King was I, to me that was like the gift of quarantine that Netflix bestowed <laughs> upon the world. Uh, I, I reflect upon the, the the Tiger King days as the good old days of quarantine. Um, so I, I mean, I'm not surprised that that she feels like the right kind of fit for like what they cast in this show, trying to respond to pop culture and representing sort of a moment that has happened here. So uh, it kind of seems like if I was casting this show, she would have been like right at the top of my list for right now. So it's. <laughs> I mean, she's got she's got what one last minute left on her fifteen minutes to cash in, and this would be it. Uh, I like that someone tweeted that uh, basically what no one's getting is that everyone watched Tiger King because we thought that we were locked up for just a couple weeks and that's it. That's why we binge watched it. So, so the fact that they're now also trying to make a TV series out of it or a made-for-TV movie dramatizing it is also uh, a little insane. Right. Well, you know, I mean, famously, H.L. Mencken or somebody like him once said nobody ever went broke underestimating the taste of the American public. Um, and the people at Dancing with the Stars seem to have embraced that wholeheartedly. All right. We have a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to make a quick shift here. So, yes, you're in a bookstore in Kyoto. Um, it sounds like the beginning of a song somehow. You're in a bookstore in Kyoto. And suddenly you realize you need to poop. Um, maybe this has never happened to you, but it turns out that it's happened to a lot of people. Um, enough anyway, so that there's a syndrome with, uh, with the name of the person who first described this experience. Uh, that's um, Mariko Aoki. Uh, and um, 
And then a lot of speculation, even at least one book <laughs> by a gastroenterologist <laughs> trying to figure out why, what, what would be, why would there be a phenomenon like this? One of the many speculations is that uh, the Japanese culture, they like to have phenomenons that are named after somebody. So maybe there's just that one. But uh, as we were juggling around topics, trying to decide what we were going to talk about today. Um, so Carolyn, you kind of went down a, a rabbit hole on this one. What, what did you find there besides the rabbits and rabbit poop? So many wonderful things. Uh, I, I, I mean, the the Wikipedia article about this alone is like a real is a real gem. Um, I, I honestly like this is the kind of thing I think like you just need to Google and just start exploring and thinking about. Um, it's a it's fascinating. So this has never happened to me. I have never been in a Barnes and Nobles and been like, you know, holy hell, I need to really go use that bathroom right now. Um, the fact that it's like implied that it has something to do with the chemicals in the paper, like the smell of paper, like triggers this is one of the theories that, uh, that fascinated me. And, uh, the, uh, what was the other, the other theory is that it's because somebody said that it happens to them, that then it is this like mass hysteria that other people believe it's happening to them. Right. I mean, I think uh -huh. I can't remember. Were you on the She Dies Tomorrow uh, episode recently? I can't remember. Did, did you? Yes. Did we, yes OK, so that, so the, yeah. the so that so imagine so the, the notion behind the film classic She Dies Tomorrow, which we do not encourage you to watch. Uh, it's a no. horror movie where the whole idea is every time somebody meets somebody else, they kind of transmit this idea to the person that that person is going to. Uh, so uh, and, and so that it's a, a viral belief that you're going to die tomorrow. And so this is kind of, you know, a much milder version of that. But that the theory is that once people started talking about the fact that they have this experience, people are so suggestible that other people started to have this experience. And then it became like a fairly low level gastroenterological version of mass hysteria or something. I don't oh, know. It's the, the theory that you're your abdomen becomes cooled because bookstores economize on heat. <laughs> like this is actually one of the scientific theories that people are throwing around for why they have to go to. This is so it, it just goes in so deep on so many levels. There are articles, there are theories, there are reddits, there are posts. And if you start typing in, why do bookstores? It like auto fills that as one of the top choices. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, I, was, I was gonna suggest that perhaps it has to do with something um, like when I lived in New York, the best bathrooms to go to for like the brief year I was there, the, everybody knows you go to the Barnes and Noble or the Borders at the time, bookstores for the cleanest bathrooms or at least like the most reasonably <laughs> clean bathrooms. So yeah, you know, Helder, I agree. I was gonna say like, when I'm in the city, when I lived in the city, like, you know, about bathrooms, like good bathrooms to right. head I to. Mean, it's such a George Costanza type of thing. Like, I think it even comes up in, in an episode. There is. He takes the book into the bathroom. <laughs> right. right. <That's laughs> and right. then he can't return oh, it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, mm -hmm. For me, that's, that sort of became, maybe you're, it is like a psychological thing. So I'm going to just confess to every person here, like I've gone to bookstores and yeah, sometimes like you have that extra latte or coffee drink that just goes through your bowels and for some reason it decides like i guess i get, i have to use this barnes and noble bathroom today for no this has literally never happened to me and now i'm fascinated really? to know like if i go to a bookstore now because i know about this am i gonna have to go to the bathroom 
Right. Like, um, is this? Well, am I going to be subject to that? That <laughs> to the mass hysteria regarding this? It's not clear to me that the Mariko Aoki phenomenon has a huge American participation. I will say, just you know, having been to Japan, I can say that. Public bathrooms are kind of all over the place. I mean, some of them are like almost literally a hole in the floor. And then, of course, Japanese famously have the most elaborate toilet seats in the in the world that have, you know, they're like made by NASA or something. They have every possible attachment and device on them. So um, I, but I, I do think I mean, I'll just bring up a couple of the other theories and then we can sort of uh, bath them around a little bit. Another one is that it's a Pavlovian response that what happens is that we read on the toilet a lot uh at home so uh then you go to a place where there's a lot of reading material and that's another kind of suggestion that flows into your head my absolute favorite is the conspiracy theory uh, <laughs> a, there's a theory on the internet that the uh publishing industry the paper industry uh, mixes uh, certain chemicals into the books and other paper products that make people want to defecate, which increases the demand for toilet paper. This is like one of the best and worst conspiracy theories ever. But Helder, I feel like one thing we're seeing here is the capacity of the internet just to churn stuff, you know, to take a little idea. This all began with, a, I believe, a, a woman who wrote a letter to the editor in some Japanese publication years ago mentioning this. And now we have, you know, as Carolyn said, every possible you know, uh, particularly online expression of that idea. Maybe the internet is just really, really good at this or bad. Oh, 100% agree. Like it re things on the internet, just regurgitating and like, the way it just all seems to escalate lately. I mean, we're all on Twitter. We know what that means. Like the minute like QAnon became a thing and now it's everywhere. And, and just listening to anyone talk about stuff on Facebook and like the conspiracy theories they see there and it's just become, but I mean, conspiracy theories have always been around and it just has gained more traction and more ground now on, on the internet. With, we're so, it's so unfiltered half the time. Like no one's really double checking everything unless you go to Snopes or I think there's another one called True or, or Fact um, that I was looking at yesterday. But we're just wanting to like, I feel like as a human species, we just want to uh, accept all these weird ideas to make something makes sense in some fashion. Well, right. then on that note, I want to pitch that the Carolyn Payne phenomena become yes. a thing. We talked about this via email. So as I've mentioned on this show, I hate going to movie theaters. And one of the major reasons is I get like anxiety about missing the movie because movie theaters, I always have to pee. I have never made it through a movie in a theater where I haven't had to leave to go to the bathroom and then inevitably miss a key part or the best part or the scariest part of a movie. So I have developed this huge anxiety around going to movie theaters because they make me go to the bathroom. And Helder said that that happens to him too. So this is clearly the Carolyn Payne phenomena in movie theaters. Uh, let's get this going. Twitter, Reddit, answer my questions. Why does this happen to me? Right. What's I the think science you, behind that? Right. I think you've already answered the question, which is it's sort of top of mind when you walk in. Is this going to happen to me? Am I going to have this problem? So you are going to ha have this problem. The self-fulfilling prophecy right. of doom. Yeah. <laughs> Although, so Helder, as a movie buff, uh, first of all, I just want to say that despite being quite a bit older than Carolyn and thus much more likely have to, to, to have to go to the bathroom a lot, I made it through like The Irishman in a movie theater. Same, uh, same. Yeah. And and I Helder, I actually sort of think there can be a kind of exquisite tension there, you know, where you're thinking, well, 
I do kind of have to go to the bathroom, but this is like I, I, I'm also a completist about the experience of watching this movie. And this movie is important enough for me so that I am not going to do that. I am going to just sort of clench in there uh, uh, and get through this. Um, no way. There is crazy. no way that's going to make me suffer having to like go to the bathroom and just sit there. Well, I wasn't yeah, talking uh, to you. I know that about you. I was talking to Helder. He's oh, no, in the no, movie no. business. I I 100% am that person that's not going to want to go like, what am I going to, I, you know, there's an actual app. Isn't there an app that like basically, I know there's a website that tells you where you're supposed to like, where in the movie is a good spot to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have need for that. I'm not going to like try to go to that. Like I make sure to go right before like, and I know that there's like some theory now that like going to like, if you force yourself to go, it's like screwing with your bladder. So that makes it worse. Um, but <laughs> I've been able to survive the Irishman without having to go or think about going. You know, there have been the times where I'm like, holy moly, can I wait? How much longer is this film? Do I really need to go? But, oh, we're at the third act. I can't leave the third act. I can suffer for another 20 minutes or so. Right. Um, That is the very definition of sunk costs. You know, (laughs) at at that point, it would be such a betrayal if you were to do this. Uh, I just have to sort of say uh, on the uh, on the social medias, on the internets, uh, this is this goes back to our previous topic, but Jim Chapdelaine, a regular nose panelist, is wondering whether Carol Baskin's partner on Dancing with the Stars is going to disappear at some point. Uh, wow. <laughs> certainly hope not. Uh, so uh, we have to take a little break here because we have actually got two fine cultural products to talk about on the other side of this. And that's what we're going to do. Nobody seems to pay him any mind. A bestsellers and bookshelves full of self-help printed word. The sun fain elegant is heard. I just want to say, uh, first of all, this is Colin McEnroe. Second of all, I want to assure you, despite the doubts you're having right now, that this actually is public radio, even though so far we have talked about Carol Baskin from the Tiger King being on Dancing with the Stars and a phenomenon with an actual name, which makes people think that they need to poop when they're in bookstores. This still actually is public radio. You can, you know, you can stop banging on the side of your, of your radio if you actually are doing that right now. Uh, Helder Mira is one of our panelists today, media, multimedia producer at Trinity College and Cine Studio board member Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Uh, and yeah, we're going to start out uh, with, well, we'll look, first of all, we'll just say that uh, right now, because one of the few new releases on the market right now is the uh, Ted, Bill and Ted Face the Music, the third film in the Bill and Ted series, uh, we thought, oh, well, we should do that. People are kind of talking about it. It's actually getting uh, halfway decent reviews. Not that that's anything to go by anymore, from what I can tell. Uh, but then I also thought, well, you know, a long time ago, we did a show about Cobra Kai when it was just a YouTube phenomenon, but it is a reboot of another 80s product, project, uh, Karate Kid. So we're going to sort of combine the two of them. But we're going to begin with Bill and Ted. Uh, this is uh, a little clip from the movie. You're going to hear Alex Winter as Bill and Keanu Reeves, who else, as Ted, and the great Holland Taylor as the great leader of being in the future. Here we go. A song created by Preston Logan. It's us, Ted. At a concert performed by everyone in the band at 7.17 p.m. at MP46, that's tonight, we'll save reality as we know it 
uniting humanity across all time. Wait, I'm sorry. What? Did you say reality as we know it? Yes! the song in 77 minutes and 25 seconds you have everything you require get to work well i, I think the premise of the film is self-evident now no not really uh, what you need to know i think and maybe helder can help us a little bit with this but uh, what you need to know sort of in terms of the whole arc of the bill and ted narrative is which is very similar uh, in some ways to a, a much preferable movie in my view directed by the same person who directed the newest bill and ted movie which is galaxy quest in both cases um superior races beings in the future whatever have have based a lot of their culture on uh, some actual m sort of low culture from either the past or uh, great distances in space away i'm torturing this analogy but anyway uh, I, I think in the first bill and ted movie helder we learn that in the future these two guys who at this point are high school morons um <laughs> that that they have influenced really you know the development of humankind 800 years hence uh and he, in this movie they are as is suggested in that clip asked to save not just you know humankind but reality itself space and time in some way is collapsing upon itself only they can save it by writing apparently a a, a perfect song um so, which makes total sense to me but i helder can you help us a little bit like what is the bill and ted franchise all about assuming it's all about something i mean for me anyway it's basically a nice fun spoof of uh of time travel ideas and uh crazy shenanigans that's been put at that point have been put forth and stuff like uh doctor who which i didn't know about at the time i found out about years later so the spoof of um the <clears throat> the homage actually of using the telephone the telephone booth is actually a callback to Doctor Who and even the way they travel. Um, and what we've got is just that crazy idea of like two kids that don't know anything. And as you were saying offline, you know, don't have the internet in the eighties to like research or, and certainly aren't book smart that they're going to know how to really solve the issues that they need to like pass their history class. So that premise then leads them to go into history and like, meet all these uh, historical figures, bring them back as this way to save themselves, to help themselves pass so that they're not split up as a team, as a band, and that they can create the song that will then save the future, which then gets recycled in a way in the in Bogus Journey, where now that there is this future, there's notorious or uh, very villainous beings out there that want to uh, destroy it and make it go from this, like, you know, very whimsical future uh, based on Bill and Ted to bringing it back to just like a very normal, uh, bland future that doesn't revolve around being excellent to each other, doesn't revolve around the color and the music and, and the history and just turn it into this bland dystopian future. I, I don't know if we're in it right now, but um, <laughs> where you have like a great villain played by Joss Ackland sending uh, robots 
duplicates back in time. Again, another trope based on the Terminator and, <clears throat> and other science fiction to like destroy the Bill and Ted that we know and love, send them to hell and then take over and destroy with the, the music that they would actually create. But again, once, you know, as good go always goes, good wins by like coming back and fixing it and they're able to like create their, you know, visionary song that like saves the universe uh, with the help of Spoiler. Death. Spoiler. Too many spoilers. Oh, no, I, I, I doubt there's any way to spoil the, uh, either one of these movies. I, I'm just kidding. But so, Carolyn, <laughs> uh, you're a little bit of a newcomer to all this. I, I will say, you know, I, I think all of us watched it maybe last night. Um, and um, well, first of all, just give me your general response to it, Carolyn. All right. Well, actually, I really liked the original. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was a movie I super loved as a kid. Um I was less keen on their sequel, The Bogus Journey. And I think like this is this to me was kind of a big disappointment when I heard they were making this. I was actually kind of excited. You know, you get that like nostalgia. And uh, I was hoping they'd be really clever with it. Instead, there were parts of this that just kind of bummed me out. I mean, right away, seeing like, you know, the two of them look old was just weird, especially because they were still acting like those loser high school. Those They were like these like lovable losers and the fact that they're still acting like that, but now look like these old men. I was kind of like, uh, I don't know, like a little, it, it was a little for me to get past that. There were some moments that I definitely laughed. Um, it, right at the beginning, I actually thought like at the beginning, I had a lot of hope for it. The wedding scene yeah. with oh, the missing character. Yeah, I thought that was like I was so I, I was so hopeful. I was like, oh, they've nailed this because the Missy character who they both had asked to prom, then married Bill's father, then married Ted's father, and now is marrying Ted's little brother, making his father his own son. I mean, it, that that line just got me. I I loved that because right. it kind of it fit that sort of ridiculous loop that Bill and Ted, the original, kind of takes you on these loops that all connect. Uh, but then as it started going, uh, I, I, I mean, I just became numb to it and just kind of let it happen. But I, can I just add, like, I feel part of part of it, and, and you kind of nailed it there, Carolyn, was just like looking at them feeling old. It just, to me, felt like Keanu just was not in it at all. Like he just felt so tired and looked tired the whole he time. He looked like, tired. Yeah. He just, Honestly. Like, for me, the daughters, the two, the actresses who played the daughters, especially the one who played Keanu Reeves' daughter, she was doing yeah. a great impression of him. Oh, yeah. That was just, it constantly made me laugh. Her physicality, she captured his physicality in the original movie so well, and his hair and everything. That cracked me up, and I felt like the movie was actually at its best with the two of them sort of recreating the journey of collecting uh, historical figures from the past. And I their totally chemistry... Agree was really fun. And I, I could have, to me, maybe the movie would have been stronger had it been more of that and less of the less of Bill and Ted trying to recreate something. It felt like they were like Bill and Ted were just, you know, as the title says, facing the music, like they're on this really existentialist um, life experience, which is what does happen where they are going through these weird phases as they themselves, as we've been saying, are at this point in their life, this essentially midlife crisis for them where you mm -hmm. know, their relationships aren't working, you know, Bill's dad or Ted's dad tells them 
once again, as he does every movie that like, you know, they're, they're just losers. They're not doing anything with their lives. And, you know, points to the daughters as like examples of like, you're being bad examples to them. Um, and, you know, good on them for bringing back like a lot of the old original cast, except for the, the princesses are all again, once again, new, new actresses for that. Right. We have to explain that in the originals, they married uh, princesses from the 15th century um, somehow. Um, Which that was the, 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 can I just say the, uh, the couple's counseling was one of the funnier parts. <laughs> yeah, right. that was, that was definitely, I, I enjoyed that. I mean, overall, it was just not the most triumphant return that I wanted it to be. <laughs> Right. I, I would say I'm a little bit of a newcomer to the Bill and Ted uh, franchise. I don't know what I was doing in 1989, becoming a father, I guess. But um, the um, th- there was a, a, a way in which um, the jokes were maybe a little bit sharper, oddly enough, in the first one. I mean, a couple of the I mean, they're such morons, for example, that uh, early in the movie, they're in their high school class. The teacher asks uh, Keanu Reeves's character, Ted, who Joan of Arc was, and he says, Noah's wife. Um, the uh, When they meet Socrates, uh, Bill encourages Ted to philosophize with Socrates. <laughs> so Keanu Reeves looks at him and says, all we are is dust in the wind dust in the wind i mean I, you know I, I, there's a sort of quality of the jokes that i what i noticed about this movie is it kind of leads with its brain in, in a way that uh, makes me wonder what its intended audience could possibly be and by that i mean for example very on very early on the, the two guys their their music is becoming more and more experimental because they're still under the tremendous pressure to come up with the perfect song and so they're using you know bagpipes and all kinds of weird instruments <laughs> and, and a theremin at one point uh and one of the daughters says that was just great work on the theremin you really are you had almost a clara rockmore moment well, Clara Rockmore is a classical theremin player from like the 1930s. Uh, I mean, like who in the world would be expected even to get a joke like that uh, and or a reference, not even a joke, but a reference like that. But I think what happens in the movie is is that it kind of rolls from the opening stuff that you're both saying that you kind of enjoyed and had a little bit of the flavor of the earlier iterations into this kind of music nerd contemplation of music i mean there's a way in which you know uh, although it ultimately doesn't really deliver the the promised song that you know could fix everything um but you know as they're hunting around and finding Jimi hendrix and louis armstrong uh and a, a great uh flute player who actually does did really exist a chinese uh, flute player from antiquity although i believe the flute player was a man but it's a woman in this thing and then going to the grasslands of africa and finding an early homo sapiens who's the greatest drummer ever. There's a way in which there's some kind of music nerd person here, Helder, who really wants to make a movie about how music could fix everything. Uh, and the, I think the movie's biggest problem is it starts to take itself a little bit seriously in that regard. Absolutely. I think it's a, like it's, I feel like this is a Sam Hatch moment where like Sam would be all about every single music <laughs> aspect that's going on there and like every other community <laughs> DJ that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to hate me for listening into this right now. I'm like, I'm not like Eric Danton should be talking about this bit. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> that's me name dropping with the few musician, musical people I know. Um, but it definitely just had this, like, I mean, I got that there was a reference I should know about Clara, but when she's talking about the theremin, but I'm like, all right, that's just over my head. I'll, I'm going to presume that's what it is. And then I love like the Jimi Hendrix and the, you know, Louis Armstrong bit, but 
and even the Amadeus, like there's so many great moments like that. But then at the end, like trying to bring together all of this into the musical hodgepodge and uh, mixture that they're trying to create reminded me of this uh, this American Life story that they did, or was it Radio Lab, where they try to find the perfect song that appeals to everyone, and it's just a co- like kaleidoscopic mess. Right. I, I think that's, you know, the old thing about if you're going to put a knife on the table, you need to use it by the second act. Well, right. if you're going to have Jimi Hendrix and Louis Armstrong and uh, and Mozart come together, you really need to kind of deliver something that seems like the product of that. And, and they never get there, despite the fact they seem to take it seriously. <laughs> All right. Uh, McPants is telling us we got to transition over to Cobra Kai. So, Carolyn, this is our second dance around the Cobra Kai <laughs> maypole. Uh, but just to help people understand, this one takes the two main characters, the two protagonists, the Ralph Machio uh, character uh, who prevails in Karate Kid uh, and Daniel, who's now, uh, it turns out, in in adult life, he's an incredibly successful auto dealership salesman with a tremendous house, a lovely family, uh, annoying commercials where he karate chops the prices down on on various cars. Uh, And then Johnny, who who, uh, the blonde guy who gets kicked in the face right at the end of the movie. And he is just turned into this complete washout, a barely employable handyman with an apparent drinking problem and a real Trumpista kind of rage at modernity and people who aren't like him and people who don't look like him. And yet, Carolyn, somehow or other, he becomes the more interesting and sympathetic of the two characters in this one. Yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this, but between these two reboots, I I would choose this one. And that's super weird because I never even saw the first Karate Kid. <laughs> so... <laughs> there's that um i i just this was so much more watchable and uh and engaging and while it kind of struggles with like the same thing sort of this they're they're both sort of about a a midlife crisis and sort of about like nostalgia and uh, and you know having that great moment when you're young and where you're at later i mean they kind of they're similar but this just does it in such a less, uh, I, I, I don't know, it, th- there was an ease to it and there's a watchability and it's it's well written. Um, and I had watched it, so I didn't fully rewatch it now, but I had watched it before and uh, I revisited it now for this. And I was like, yeah, I would sit and watch this. Like, I'm not, I'm not mad at this. Uh, I'm not just kind of like watching it because I have to. It really, it, it's well done in that. Right. It, in we that should way. actually, we should play a little clip before we go to Helder on this too. So uh, you're going to hear uh, Ralph Macchio as Daniel LaRusso, William Zabka as Johnny Lawrence. They're both grown up now and uh, two other characters. Uh, this is when uh, Johnny goes to Daniel's beautiful auto dealership because his car has been transported there after an accident that was not his fault. Uh, and here's uh, Daniel introducing Johnny to his co-workers. It's a hey, Anoush. Come here. Louie, get over here. I want oh, you to no, meet somebody. I gotta go. No, 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 no. This is Johnny Lawrence. He and I go way back, right, buddy? This guy was the toughest dude in my high school. When I first moved here from Jersey, he and I we got into it a little bit. This guy really had it in for me. Yeah, well, you did move in on my girl. Well, she actually wasn't really a girl anymore, was she? I mean, 
Ah, all right. That's all water under the bridge. Wait, is this the karate guy? The guy from the tournament? Oh, this, this is the guy whose ass she kicked. Uh, listen, it was a really close match, but if you want to get technical, I kicked his face. <laughs> I'm just busting your chops. It was an illegal kick. Oh, illegal? Really? Come on, what about that elbow to my knee? Yeah, I got a warning. You got the win. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No fighting in the showroom, guys. <laughs> yeah, come on. All right, back to work. All right, nice Let's to meet you. Go. Get back to work. Enough reminiscing, right? All right, so um, there's a way in which um, this guy, William Zabka, who played Johnny originally and plays Johnny now, um, you know, I mean, Helder, I feel like he really delivers this very, very interesting layered performance because without really relinquishing, you know, his biases, his bitterness, his anger, his bile, his refusal to embrace anything about modern life, um, there's something about him that is a little bit irresistible anyway. I, you know, his performance is so amazingly nuanced. It's so beautiful. Like, here's the thing. Like, for me, growing up in the 80s, watching him as the villain um, in the original movie and obviously empathizing uh, with Macho in that movie where, like, as, you know, immigrant kid having to take on, like, the privileged, you know, while being working class and, you know, kind of in that 80s vein, I didn't realize that's what I was appealing to, but... um, and attaching myself to it and printing. But like now, like seeing that reversed and seeing like what's happened to Johnny Lawrence. And I, I love, there's this beautiful opening scene where like it ends, it, it you see the original fight and it pulls out, you see him fall down and it pulls out to him being like, just waking up drunk in bed, still like almost in the same position. It just sets the tone for what his life has become. And the idea that like the xenophobic antagonist of like that eighties movie is going to somehow become our anti-hero protagonist in the reboot now is just, mm-hmm. it, it works so, so well. And it's all in like Zapka's delivery, like how he's very understated. But then when he has these explosive moments that you remember, all oh, right, that's the douche from way back when, but at the same time, he does it in this way where like he, uh, you know, he starts this kind of like relationship with the kid that he's going to start training and, and, takes like takes him for being like you know a mexican but of course like doesn't bother to think about like where he's actually from until he starts to like see see him get hurt more often and starts to embrace the family as he initially addresses him as menudo that's his level of cultural sophistication we have to take a little break here i just do want to say one thing that i may have said the first time around which is that you know the original karate kid really was kind of a, a globalist movie it's not rocky it gets compared to rocky all the time but rocky is really about the triumph of a white working class guy not that different from johnny lawrence what happens in the original karate kid uh, is in fact that a, a young ethnic guy from new jersey embraces okinawan wisdom and bonsai trees and and finds a lot more truth comfort and self-containment in those things uh and and so this movie is just a very interesting answer to it because now we see the other side of it that that movie was released in the middle of the reagan era this is released in the middle of the trump era and you see this very trumpy character trying to figure out what his place in the world is we really it's not a movie it's a series it's on netflix i think we all recommend that you watch it take your chances with bill and ted but i think you're pretty safe with cobra kai all right we got to take a break try to believe though the going gets rough that you gotta hang tough to make it history repeats itself try and you succeed never doubt that you're the one and you can have your dreams 
This is The Nose, this week with Helder Mira and Carolyn Payne. I've got to thank Kat Pastor. Uh, she's there in the studio firing off all the clips and the music and making the whole thing work and keeping us all in the air and making it possible to work remotely. Uh, Jonathan McPants is the producer of The Nose pretty much every week, and he is the producer of this episode as well. Uh, and uh, we're going to now uh, shift to some recommendations, uh, things that you might enjoy out there in the world to fill up your three-day weekend. Carolyn, what have you got for us? All right. So uh, I am reading a book right now called Awkward Moments, uh, spelled like W-O-R-D. And it's a book that looks at, um, it, it, the subtitle to it is A Lively Guide to 100 Terms Smart People Should Know. And it's actually written by uh, NPR affiliate podcasters. And it looks at phrases and words that you often hear or like you see if you're reading the New York Times and you may know what they mean, but you can't always define them. You don't know where that phrase came from. It's really fascinating. Um, and uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's it's great. It's pretty much just laid out like a dictionary with uh, anecdotal descriptions and the history of the words and the phrases. It's it's really fun. Um, and I have learned so much from it and so many things I thought I knew from taking Latin or, you know, something that, or you thought you knew where a word came from or were, it's just, it's wonderful. Is there, um, a, is there a quick example you can think of from the book? I hate to put you on the spot, but. Oh boy. Um, I, I don't even, I, I honestly, I can't without okay. <laughs> running off the book, but <laughs> I learned so much from it that I can't cite something per particular. Right. Uh, I can't. Unfair. It was an unfair question. Anathema, the word anathema. I'd always heard people drop that in conversation. And yeah. um, and that was one that has a great section here. And they use it in they have, quote, examples. And uh, apparently Ted Danton claimed that playing um, Sam on Cheers was an anathema to him. Mm. And so now you can go and look up that word and look up that quote and understand that it's it's a really fun book. Check it out. please. All right. Uh, Helder, what have you got for us? So I feel like I'm on a <clears throat> sort of a, a stuck in a rut here with the same th type of thing. But AP Bio, which is this comedy series that premiered on NBC two years ago, uh, returned yesterday for its third and final season on NBC's new um, streaming service, Peacock. And I am so thrilled that it's back. It was the first two seasons are just brilliantly funny. Um, Colin, it's that type of humor that you were talking about earlier with uh, Tina Fey. It's, which makes sense because it's from Miles, Mike O'Brien, who is a writer on SNL and for Seth Meyers, and uh, Seth Meyers produces it along with Lauren Michaels. And one of the main actors is Paul Appel, who is a writer on SNL. And she alone, is it's worth the price of admission just for her as, um, as uh, Principal Durbin's secretary. And Principal Durbin's played by Patton Oswalt. Um, the basic story is a disgraced Harvard philosophy professor played by Glenn Howerton uh, leaves his dream job ends up in back living in his deceased mother's house uh, in Toledo, Ohio, and working as a, a temp teacher for the AP biology class. And he has no interest in teaching these kids, and these kids just want to learn. But he has all his all he's set upon is like he's in this midlife crisis and just wants to uh, take down his rival Miles Leonard, who got got him fired from Harvard. So just it's that fish out of water. Um, mm. It's a really fun one. 
I second this. Okay, it's seconded by Carolyn. It's actually thirded by our producer, Jonathan McPants, who says it's pretty yeah. good. I personally had never heard of it before in my life. But yeah, we were talking earlier before we went on the air about one of the problems with the new Bill and Ted movie. For me, anyway, I'm used to kind of, you know, the, the pace now of Tina Fey's comedy writing, which is comedy it's it's almost like comedy on cocaine or something everything kind of comes so fast and i i get t i get bored waiting for a joke to develop or in the case of bill and ted for one joke to play itself out over you know 180 seconds or something i can't stand it all right i'm going to quickly uh endorse something really different from that which is le bureau the bureau is based on uh, it's a french tv series you may have to hunt around for it a little bit on your uh, roku but it's available i think on a, on one on a sundance channel at least the first uh, couple of seasons maybe be there uh, this is it's actually based on the it, it's has a snap and a quality to it that uh, seems a little bit more powerful than your typical uh, spy TV show and that's because it's based on the real accounts of former spies and inspired by contemporary agents and it's it, it really is terrific it is gripping spellbinding and psychologically really interesting so if you if you want a spy series uh, that has some brains and some meat on its bones it's called the bureau all right we're all done uh, head for your weekend Thanks very much to Carolyn and to Helder, to Jonathan McPants and Cat Pastor, and thanks to you for listening. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.